Uh, well, we continue our series on Revelation this morning. I think, if I'm not mistaken, it's like week 11. Uh, last week, Dave Marks walked us through the seven bowls of judgment or justice, how you want to put that together. Some nasty stuff, right? And so I was thinking as I was watching that, I leave for one week and all hell breaks loose in that service. Uh, this morning, we're going to return to a, a different theme, actually uh, a section that occurs before that in one of the intermissions. But before we get to our passage this morning, I want to remind you of our goals, just so we kind of set the table. We're studying Revelation uh, this fall because we want to take a little bit of the mystery, a little bit of the fear out of the last book of the Bible. You shouldn't be afraid of it. You shouldn't be uh, afraid to work through and see what's there. We can understand the main themes, which then gets us to the second point. Our goal in this series is not to get everybody to agree on exactly the same approach to the book. Our goal is that you will have a sane approach to the book and that above all the details, you'll be able to see the big picture, live out the main themes, not just know the main themes, and hopefully uh, increase your humility a little bit by saying they're really smart, godly people that have different approaches to the book than I do. Our main focus is to love one another, respect one another, and in conversation, kind of sharpen our opinion and our view of the book. Well, this morning, we're going to look at the counterfeit trinity. And uh, before we get to the counterfeit trinity, I thought I should probably take a couple minutes to remind you of the genuine trinity, just to get your kind of brain functioning. You can't understand the counterfeit unless you understand the genuine article. So let's start with the genuine trinity. All Christians believe, right, as an absolute, not as a conviction, not as a preference, all Christians believe in the trinity. And it goes something like, it's going to hurt your head, right? But you have to believe this. Here's what it is. There is one God. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. There is one God. One plus one plus one equals one. That's the Trinity. And so you can, you can mess up the Trinity in a couple of different directions, right? You've got to maintain the unity, one God, but also diversity. There are three persons in this Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. If you can so overemphasize the unity that you begin to have one God who wears three different costumes. He puts on his father mask, takes that off, puts on the son mask. Then he takes off that and puts on it. No, 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 that is heresy. Or you can so emphasize the diversity, father, son, spirit, that you wind up with three gods and not one. One God, father, son, and spirit, one God. That's the Trinity. That's the genuine article, right? All Christians through the ages believe that. The Bible teaches that. You can't be a Christian and not believe that, right? That is absolutely taught in the Scripture. Absolute. Well, in Revelation, we discover that the enemy, and you got to remember, Satan creates nothing. Satan designs and builds nothing. He corrupts, distorts, and seeks to destroy everything that God has made. And so in Revelation, we see a counterfeit trinity. And that's what we're going to look at today. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation 13. I'm going to read the chapter. It's not too long. And uh, we're going to look at the counterfeit 
Trinity from Revelation 13. Here we go. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads and ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth, mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth who worshiped the beast, all whose names were not written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like the dragon. It exercised all authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast, so that the image who could speak and caused all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands and on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless, unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who is in sight calculate the number of the beast, for, it's, for it is the number of, of a man. The number is 666. All right, you got it? All right, our counterfeit trinity. Lots of imagery there, lots of symbolism there. That's a perfect example of apocalyptic literature, right? We said Revelation's apocalyptic literature. Lots of symbols, lots of imagery that are actually given, not necessarily to provide lots of detail, but to cause us to feel, to cause us to emote, and we respond to what we're feeling and what we're experiencing. So here we go. The first person we meet, or the first entity we meet in chapter 13, is the dragon. And we actually met the dragon in chapter 12 a couple of weeks ago. The dragon is Satan. And so the first verse says, the dragon, right, the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. Now, we could spend a lot of time talking about all that, but here's what we have to remember. Remember the sea, to the Jews, chaos. The sea, evil. Right? The sea is danger, death, destruction. The dragon stands on the sea, right? He's on the shore of the sea. Um, the dragon, we're told from Revelation 12, is Satan himself. I think we have the verse there. 
So Revelation 9, 12, we're told this. The great dragon was hurled down, and here we go. Here's connecting the Bible story. The ancient serpent, right, Genesis 3, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray, that's the dragon. And so we know if we put the two chapters, remember there were no chapter divisions when Revelation was written or Bible was written. And so right following up, the dragon is Satan, the ancient serpent from Genesis 3. Here we are in the last book of the Bible. All the way through, you see this dragon figure, right? Satan. We're also told in chapter 12, you can go back and read it, we don't have time. Um, the dragon has seven heads, right? Seven perfection complete. That doesn't mean he's perfect and has all authority. It means that on earth, where is he? He's over the sea. He is preeminent, authoritative over all of the chaos. He has 10 horns. Horns are power, right? And he has diadems. He has crowns. So this figure, Satan in here, he is powerful. He has authority. He's ruling. He has been made to rule over all of the chaos. He's hurled from heaven. This is his world. What does Paul say? He's the prince of the world, prince of, the, prince of all of those powers. Satan, that's the dragon. Got it? Well, the, then next we're introduced to beast number one. So we mentioned a few weeks ago when we started the series. Uh, Revelation's all about two teams, Team Dragon, Team Lamb. Well, here we are, Team Dragon. We're meeting the players on Team Dragon, right? And so Team Dragon, beast number one. Beast number one is the Antichrist. Now, the word Antichrist does not appear in Revelation, but there are, you make connections, the first beast is the Antichrist. So here's what we read at the beginning of the chapter. The dragon stood on the shore, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. So here comes a second beast, right? Kind of like Godzilla coming out of the beast. Or as my wife would say, the real Godzilla, the old one, the guy in the rubber suit. Not the new one with all these special... The old, this is like that. The beast is coming out of the sea, out of the chaos, out of the evil, out of destruction and death comes a beast. There aren't too many people who, thinks that, who think that this is a real beast that looks like this. It's symbolizing something. It's symbolizing lordship, authority, power over these forces. And notice, the first beast is described in very similar terms to the dragon. Ten horns, seven heads, ten crowns on its horns, and each had a blasphemous name. Probably Lord God, right? All those names that we'd say. The beast I saw resembled a leopard. That language is coming from Daniel. And notice, he gets his authority. He gets the power from the dragon. So behind the scenes, the dragon is the one energizing beast number one. All right, so what's going on with beast number one? A couple things you have to know or be reminded of. Antichrist, right? The, word, the prefix anti means against or instead of. So if someone is called anti-Christ, he's either against Jesus, clearly that's what's going on here, or something instead of Jesus. Works either way. Isn't that what the beast is doing? When I read the chapter, did you remember I told you, a counterfeit trinity? Remember when I read about this beast 
It said that he had a fatal wound, but he survived. You notice that? Does that remind you of anyone in the genuine Trinity? Yeah, isn't it interesting that the second person in the genuine Trinity received a fatal wound, crucifixion, but he rose again? What's the dragon doing? Counterfeiting the Trinity, right? Instead of Jesus, against Jesus. So what happens? He appears to have a fatal wound. Well, if it's a fatal wound, he's dead, right? But he comes back. Huh, that's kind of interesting how that works, right? He is counterfeiting the genuine article. That, and remember, behind the scene of Beast One, we've got Satan, we've got the dragon orchestrating what's going on. He's playing the part. He's creating an alternative. He's creating a counterfeit. He's creating an instead of Trinity. That's what's going on. So what's up with this beast? Like, um, who is it or what is it? Well, there's a lot of different things we, we could say. Some people say, well, it's obviously a person. Others would say, no, it's like a state. It's an individual. It's a nation. It's an entity. It's a structure. And then names have been given attached to it, right? Through the ages. Who's the Antichrist? Lots of speculation. And so I'll just run through a very short list of the names, right? Antiochus from the Old Testament, right? He set up um, the abomination of desolation in the temple in the Old Testament. Then you have Nero, right? Middle of the first century. Then you have Domitian toward the end of the first century. Oh, but we can do it even as we go through time. How about Napoleon, Hitler, Stalin, Osama, Muhammad? What are they? They're instead of, they are against, there they are. In fact, we've, um, we've even, we even get a hint that there are lots of options when it comes to um, an alternative to Jesus. Here's what John writes in 1 John chapter 2. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard the Antichrist is coming, John uses the word Antichrist right there in the first letter. And you've heard that he's coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come. There are lots of alternatives. There are lots of instead ofs. There are lots of against out there. This is how we know it's the last hour. So will there be an individual, a state, an entity, an organization? Yeah, there probably will be. Will there be a last one? Yeah, there'll probably be a last one. Our responsibility is not to speculate on what the last one's going to be. Is it going to be worse than all the others? Ours is to say, you know what? There are a lot of alternatives in our world. There are a lot of forces, individuals. There are a lot of states. There are a lot of governmental pressures. A lot of those things are against Jesus or offering something instead of Jesus. Now, here's the difference between beast one and beast two. Beast one is coercive. Beast one intimidates. Beast one causes our fear to rise. Beast one, Antichrist, that's military might. That's the power behind it. That's intimidation to keep you from doing what's right. And regardless of your political persuasion, we live in a world where governments have that coercive ability, don't they? Governments can make it either through economic policy, through physical repercussion and consequences. They have the ability to coerce. They have the ability to intimidate. 
How many of you would ever get nervous if you received a little letter, you know, sometime May or June from the IRS, right? Yeah, that feeling is that intimidation, right? That's that coercive effect. That's what causes most of us to try to be honest, right? Because we don't want that letter coming. Well, that is beast number one, intimidation. Instead of against Jesus, beast one coming out of the sea and our responsibility, don't speculate on the individual. Um, understand how he plays and be prepared to stand against it. All right, well, let's meet beast number two. Beast number two is different. Did you notice where he doesn't come out of the sea? He comes out of the land. And he's described, I think we have verses here. Um, I'm not going to read all the verses. You can chat. Let me just mention a few things about beast two. Beast two is them. Um, called a few chapters later, 16, 19, 20. He's called the false prophet. Now, he's called the false prophet in Revelation. Beast one, Antichrist. Beast two, the false prophet. You'll notice in the description, he has two horns like a lamb. Ah, oh, peaceful little lamb. But when he speaks, he speaks as the dragon. Huh. I remember somebody said something about wolves in sheep's clothing. Yeah, well, here, here he is, right? Um, two horns like a lamb. This isn't going to be a military coercive force. This is going to be a religious voice. This is going to be, or are all of those entities, all of those religions, right, that are instead of or against. All of those deceptive words through the ages that call people away from the only gospel, right? And so beast number two, the false prophet. Now, here's, when you read that section, notice our counterfeit trinity, right? You've got Satan standing on the shore. He summons beast one out of the chaos, out of the sea. He receives a fatal wound, but he doesn't die, emulating second person of a genuine trinity. What does beast number two do? It's kind of weird. Beast number two encourages everybody, influences everybody with kind-sounding words, encouraging words, religious-sounding words to worship beast number one. What does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit does not draw attention to himself. The Holy Spirit convicts. The Holy Spirit draws us to worship the second person of the Trinity. What does beast number two do? He gathers people with words, right, and he calls them to worship beast number one, the counterfeit Trinity. Now, as you read through, I, I hope you kind of see that, that right? Satan doesn't create, he doesn't build, Satan corrupts. He destroys. Um, he deceives. So he creates a counterfeit trinity that is a parody of the genuine trinity. And sometimes we spend so much time, and you know, preachers through the ages and small group leaders and even scholars spend so much time speculating on the details. We miss the big picture. The big picture is there is an enemy, and that enemy corrupts, tarnishes, and destroys all that God makes. And the biggest way he does it is he's creating a counterfeit belief system through the ages 
that call people away from the truth and the reality of the gospel to anything else. You can miss the bullseye in an infinite number of directions. You can only hit it in one. So we've got the religious voice of deception and the coercive voice of intimidation working together as the two voices underneath the enemy. Counterfeit trinity. Well, we can't leave the chapter without talking about the mark, right? You've heard about the mark, right? So if I say the mark, what is the mark? What is it? 666, right? Everybody knows 666, right? All right, well, let's talk about what that actually means. Uh, it's a little scary because I'm going to ask you to remember something we said a number of times, but I realize most of you don't listen or don't remember. So here we go. What does the number seven mean? Perfection, right? So if seven means perfection, what does six mean? Imperfection. Now you got to remember, in Hebrew, maybe you didn't know this, in Hebrew, there are no comparative adjectives. For example, in English, we have good, better, best. There's no such thing in Hebrew. If something is better, you say, oh, he's good, good. Right? He's like twice good. That's why when you read in the Old Testament, God is not just holy. What is he? Holy, holy, holy. There is no like holiest. If you want to say holiest, holy, holy, holy. If somebody's better, it's good, good. Somebody's really good, 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 good. So if somebody is seven, complete and perfect, the ultimate would be seven sevens, like we've seen a number of times. But if someone is incomplete, imperfect, missing the mark, missing the mark, corrupt, he would be not just six, he would be six, 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 right? Incomplete, incomplete, incomplete. He missed the mark, he missed the mark. He missed the mark. He's not just corrupt. He's corrupt, corrupt, corrupt. Um, ultimate imperfection. That's kind of what the number means. So there's nothing magical about like 666. That, that, that's why 666 is used. Well, that then raises the question, well, what does that mean? Well, most would believe that 666 is referring somehow to a name. Right? And there have been lots of guesses through the ages of what, who it's referring to. And, and people have been very creative about how to do that. You know, you can take Nero's name, and if you do the letters right, and you put Caesar Nero, you put it there. Oh, you come up with 666. And if you do this, oh no, you come up with Hitler if you do this. And if you mix up the numbers this way, you get Trump. And if you do the number this way, you get Biden. And you get, everybody knows it's Hillary, right? Uh, you can play to. But I want you to know, this week I was away, so I did some calculation I know. If you take the English alphabet and you were to assign, you were to assign each of the letters a number, 1 through 26, which is how gematria works, right? That's kind of a funny way that you do it in Hebrew. And, uh, and if, so each one gets a number. If you were to take a person's name and add the numbers that correspond to it and then divide by 10, that would give you the first number. And then if you were to take the first and the fourth letter of that name, and you were to minus one and divide by two, you get six. 
And then if you were to take the first letter and multiply that by two, you get a last six, and you know what you've got? You've got Carlos. <laughs> so you don't have to be surprised anymore. Uh, now, I only do that to demonstrate to you. You can make those numbers turn out to anything you want, right? If you're creative, and I'm not even that creative, and I could do something with it. Um, what's going on with the mark? Um, is it a literal mark? Is it a tattoo? Is it a chip that when you're getting your vaccine, it may be, what is it? Um, well, and there are some that want to say, well, when it comes to the Bible, we have to be real careful. We're going to read the Bible literally unless there's clear evidence that we should read it symbolically and figuratively. Okay, but you know that works the other way. If it was intended to be figurative and you read it literally, you make a mistake too. Let me give you a flesh and blood living example of that, and I don't want to critique anybody, from the Old Testament where something was intended to be figurative, but lots of people have made it physical or literal. Uh, put, I think we got Deuteronomy here. I think it's coming. Maybe not. <laughs> oh, there we go. Okay, so this is called the Shema. And uh, hot, you know, practicing Jews say the Shema at least two times. The Shema just means here, right? And so they say the Shema a couple times. And, but to remind themselves of it, these verses allude to something that they should do. Okay, so here's the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We said that already, Trinity. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commands I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Now, we often read those verses during family dedication because family dedication isn't really the child or the baby making a commitment. It's the parent saying, no, no, we're going to impress the gospel on our kids. We're going to live out the gospel. We're going to speak the gospel. We're going to live so they can feel it and experience it and hear it. That's what we want. Now, to make the point, Moses wrote this. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Now, I'm not sure if you've ever had, like, conservative Jewish friends. Um, when, I, when I was in New York, we lived near Burholm Park, where there were lots of um, Hasidic Jews. And uh, I want to tell you, there are lots of conservative Jews that use phylacteries a couple times a day. And you know what a phylactery is? It's a little leather box. And inside the box... That's written, right? Somebody wrote real tiny. They wrote the Shema, real little tiny. You do it with a computer. A real little tiny Shema. You roll it up, you put it in the Shema. And do you know what they do twice a day? They take, no, no joke, they take the box, which has long leather straps, they put it on their hand, then they take the straps and wrap it around their arm. Because it says, tie them as symbols on your hands. Then when they're done, they take it off, they put the box on their forehead and they tie it on their forehead twice a day because the verse says, and bind them on your foreheads. And you know what else? Concern, and some of you may um, have either purchased a home that belonged to Jews or you've ever been in one. 
on the door frames of their houses of conservative Jews, when you open the door, you'll, you'll see a mezuzah. A mezuzah, right in the door frame of the house, they kind of carve out a little hole, right? I can't, but they carve out a little hole. And they take the box, right, that has the Shema written on it, and they put it in that box and make it smooth so the door will close. And they believe, okay, we are fulfilling Deuteronomy 6. Because every day I tie the phylactery on my arm, I tie it on my forehead, and I have a mezuzah on my door. Deuteronomy 6, I'm good. Is that what Deuteronomy 6 is all about? I, I would venture to say, you can tie that on your hand all you want. and tie it on, You can live with it tied on your head. You could have 20 mezuzahs on your door and live like hell. The sign is not a literal figurative thing. It's a point that says the works of your hands and the thoughts and attitude of your mind need to be influenced by God's word. That's what it means. So what may the 666 be? I don't, I don't think it's a literal deal. I think it's saying the works of your hands, the attitude of your mind and heart, the thoughts you have, are they reflective of the gospel and the genuine trinity? Or your attitudes and thoughts and the works and behavior of your life? Closer to the counterfeit trinity. I kind of think that's the idea. Which brings us then to Ephesians chapter 1. We're actually told what the mark or the seal of a Christian is. Everyone wonder that? And so here's what it says. You were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. You were included when you believed the truth and you were marked in him with a seal. The promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit's the mark. I was trying to think of an example of that. And I know Christmas is coming. And How many of you are ready? Yeah, same as me. I'm not either. Um, but I was thinking about that sitting up here this morning. And I remember, um, I guess it was a couple years ago, um, the auditorium was dark for one reason or another. And uh, I was wondering, uh, I always get nervous, like, where are my grandsons? Especially the little one, right? He, he gets lost and it's not good. So where are they? But, but then they each had Christmas light necklaces on. You ever see these things? Like, you know, the old-fashioned Christmas bulbs around here. I always knew where they were. Those necklaces, I could have found them in the dark. There they are right there. Carter, get back here. Um, right? That's kind of what God knows. God knows because we've got the Holy Spirit, Spirit necklace on, right? He knows those that are his. He protects those that are his. And regardless of how dark things may get, he knows exactly where you are and not just knows where you are. He's with you, and he's making everything work from here to home. All right, so we've looked at the counterfeit trinity, the genuine trinity. Do you see how those two work together? Antichrist, coercion, intimidation. Um, beast number two, deceit, influence. Huh. So what's the strategy? What's the counterfeit strategy? And... Uh, Regardless of your approach to Revelation, 
You may disagree with details that, that I would, you may disagree with everybody in this room concerning the details. I know this, you have to believe the strategy. That counterfeit strategy begins in Genesis and it runs through Revelation and it comes through crystal clearly in Revelation 13. Here's the strategy. Step number one, deception. Beast number two, he's all about deceiving. What does deception do? It gets us to believe and to do things that are wrong and false. Deception. You're convinced that this is the right belief. You're convinced that this is the right thing to do. And maybe it comes across like, like this to you, similar to uh, Genesis chapter 3, right? Maybe it goes like this. Um, God's not looking out for your best. Are you kidding me? You know better than God what you need. So grab it. Why in the world would you take your hard-earned money and put it into play to serve other people and give gifts to people you don't even know? You could use that money. After all, there are things you need and you want, right? And deception, deception. Um, play with this. It won't hurt. It's no problem. Just try it. it it's good. It's going to Deception. Strategy, that hasn't changed. Remember the first word of deception? Did God really say you can't, did God really say that? Deception. What's the second strategy? Oh yeah, beast number one, intimidation. Intimidation. Um, intimidation we've seen already in Revelation works in at least two directions. Economic intimidation. Remember as we read the churches? If you don't belong to the right guild, if you don't worship the right patron deity, deity you won't be able to earn a living. And if you can't earn a living, you're not going to provide for your family. Intimidate. You need to sign up and do it this way. And if not, there are prices to pay. Economic intimidation and coercion, physical intimidation, peer pressure, any of that kind of pressure. Here's how it works. Deception to get you to do something or believe something that's wrong. Intimidation to keep you from doing what's right. He's got all the bases covered, doesn't he? And what's the third thing? Accusation. Here's the irony. Satan works through the entity of Antichrist, that, that thought, through the false prophet, to deceive, to intimidate. And as soon as he deceives and intimidates, he's right there to accuse us. You ever notice that? And you call yourself a Christian. Christians don't do stuff like that. You're going to go and worship on Sunday morning after what you did last night. I, I don't know what you did last night, by the way, right? Um, <laughs> you ever hear that little voice? Accusation. So who is Satan and his team here? The accuser. The deceiver. The intimidator. And he's created a whole counterfeit structure instead of the real deal as an alternative that's against the gospel instead of the gospel you do this you know if just flying 30,000 feet over the verses we don't even need speculation for that to hit home do we and maybe it's a, even a little darker a little more frightening than trying to figure out who's this and who's that and what this mark means. There's a real enemy. I will often say uh, 
at weddings. You're getting married right now, and my guess is your hope and your thought is that this marriage, unlike all the others, it's going to take place on a romantic balcony. Let me speak truth to you two folks. You were walking onto a battleship. That's the reality for us, right? If you think uh, your Christian life is just a romantic balcony, you and Jesus, um, you're a sitting duck. We're in a war here. Here's an enemy. He's a lot more powerful, a lot stronger, a lot wiser than we are. And make no mistake, he wants to take you out. He's not playing. He created a counterfeit trinity to do his work. And his goal is to see our demise and the corruption and destruction of this world. The stakes are pretty high. Well, how do we win this battle? Well, we were told that numerous times, but here it is again. We triumph over him and over the whole counterfeit trinity by the blood of the Lamb. It's not by our strength. It's not by trying real hard. It's not by having extra long quiet time. It's not by going to work. And it's not by giving more money. It's not, no. Our victory was already won by Jesus. And the best thing we can do, gaze at the lamb, follow him. Be prepared for the battle. But the way you win that battle is staying close to the lamb who won the victory. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that even though we uh, don't know what a lot of these details mean, and there may even be a fair bit of disagreement in the room, but Lord, the big picture is pretty clear. Lord, our victory is not by great strength. It's not by powering up and being more disciplined. Our victory has already been won through Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to keep our eyes fixed on him, stay close to him. And as we do, we'll experience the victory that he won and he will ultimately complete. We pray in his name. Amen.